Today, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Diana Kelly. Diana is truly a cybersecurity industry icon. Not only is she a globally known security expert, she is also the co-founder and CTO of Security Curve, a cybersecurity consulting firm who donates much of her time to volunteer work in the cybersecurity community, including on the Association for Computing, Machinery, Ethics, and Plagiarism Committee. Diana has served as the field CTO at Microsoft, the global executive security advisor at IBM Security, general manager at Symantec, VP at Burton Group, which is now Gartner. And last year, Diana was awarded the Executive Women's Forum's Executive of the Year and one of Cybersecurity Ventures' 100 Fascinating Females Fighting Cybercrime. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, Diana. Oh, thank you so much, Anne. It's really great to be here. So, Diana, obviously we know each other. You've been the strategic (laughs) advisor. You've been a cybersecurity writer for many years. You focused on IT security. You've done things in risk management, compliance, and network architecture development. And you've seen the security landscape change really quickly from attacks and methods to the marketplace. So how do you help organizations who don't have the experience you do get up to speed in the cybersecurity landscape? Yeah, that is such a good question. And I have to say, one of the things I've realized in all my all these many years that you and I have both been in IT is that the rapid pace of change in technology and the attack techniques can really feel a lot more manageable when it's grounded and balanced by principles and technical realities. You know, we can forget how long a lot of these concepts have been around, like RACAF, which is the Resource Access Control Facility, it was introduced to the market in 1976. So that means that people have been thinking about identity and access control for like 50 years. So once you start to get a feel for what the baselines are of security and what's important, confidentiality, integrity, you know, availability, then suddenly the current landscape, it feels a little bit less overwhelming so that they can get up to speed faster when they understand what it means to have the brakes on the car, what those brakes do, whether the brakes are working. So that is really, for me, just a big one is to give them that that baseline. But then you have to start having conversations with the people about what the real problems are, helping them to prioritize. And I find that a security assessment can really help there. Because when you're doing an assessment, you're talking to all the key stakeholders. And as you're having those interviews with them, you start talking to them about why you're asking certain questions. You know, a CEO may be like, why does it matter what I do when I get into my email? And that's a great opportunity to explain business email compromise to them and how attackers are getting in that ransomware, you know, going through phishing as one of the big attack vectors. So that, I think, is another big part of that that puzzle is getting them the baseline, having the assessment, having that conversation in the real business, you know, in the the way that the business communicates with the business stakeholders. Now they've got a really good platform from which to hear and to read all of these headlines that are coming every day about changes and tactics and techniques. And hopefully they've got a better base to hear that from so that the delta is going to be smaller between understanding and hopefully all that noise is going to be less alarming and overwhelming. So when you start with a customer, right, and you start with someone and you want to actually do that landscape overview for them, or that assessment, where do you suggest they start? Or is it different depending on the organization? 
Well, to do assessments, we actually use something that we, we base off of the 27,000 series. So we, we take a look at the 27,000 series, what would apply to that organization. If that organization is in healthcare, for example, and they're getting ready for HIPAA, then obviously we're going to bring in some of the, the, the questions that pertain to HIPAA. If it's NERC, it's got to pertain to energy. After looking at that and assessing what the company is, we read all the policies that the company has already so that we can start to get a feel for where they think they are versus where they should be. And then we go through the assessment interviews and have the conversations. And now we've got a really good handle on what the company is, who the company, who their partners are, who their customers are, and then using that against a really strong, well-known framework like ISO 27000 gives a good starting point. But some companies, they prefer to, you know, to use NIST 853, for example. You know, any well-known framework can be a really good starting point. Okay. Let's talk for a minute about IoT. Okay. So we've seen a proliferation of IoT devices. It's been reported that by the end of 2018, there were 22 billion IoT-connected <laughs> devices in use. Yeah, 22 billion. And that was three years ago. So as the sophistication of hardware and software and consumer electronics skyrockets, there's this increasing share of the electronic devices produced around the world that, you know, have internet connectivity. I, I got in my car the other day, and by the way, I needed to do a software update before I could drive it. So that was, you know, that was interesting. Anyway, um, but forecasts suggest that by the year 2030, around 50 billion of these IoT devices will be in use around the world. So this is a massive web of all these interconnected devices spanning everything from smartphones to kitchen appliances to cars. We now know that manufacturers are going to continue to compete on who gets the latest device in your hands first, right? You know, in this household, I'm always the last one to get a new phone because I literally hate upgrading my phone, but my other two gadget-driven household members are always want the newest one, right? As soon as they're eligible for upgrade, they're running out to get something. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What do you believe are the most significant security and privacy concerns plaguing the field of IoT connected devices? And what is your guidance to organizations as more and more workers are starting to bring their own devices to work? Yeah, you know, it's funny when you talk about, you know, IoT is everywhere. I think I know we're both huge, huge dog lovers and all of these different collars that they've got for dogs now that have GPS in them and we're turning our dogs into IoT devices too with them. It's really, it matters, right? So there, and there are a lot of significant security and privacy hurdles for IoT, and it can be really hard to figure out where to start. So actually, when I was at IBM, I developed something called Five Indisputable Facts About IoT, and it really distilled the major concerns into five umbrella categories. And the first one is that devices are going to operate in hostile environments, which is kind of a known, right? If it's around your dog's neck, it's going to be running through the woods with your dog. If it's, if it's a smart meter outside your house, it's got the wind and the rain. So we have to think about security and privacy in that context. Software security is going to degrade over time. In other words, what do we do about patching these systems? You just had to patch your car, right? So it had an over-the-air update. But there were some car manufacturers that were talking about using USB sticks to update cars, which, as you could imagine, right, that could be a, a security vulnerability because maybe anybody getting into your car could just have put that USB stick in. So how do we how do we update these systems? That shared secrets do not remain secret. And this is a really big one in IoT. If you remember the Mariah attack, that took down Dyne, the um, DNS server, and then that brought down a lot of their customers with them, including Twitter. That was in part able to be launched because people don't change their passwords that are the default with the IoT device. And as the IoT device ships, 
some manufacturers, maybe not wisely, had the same user ID and password to get into every single device of that brand that that shipped out. So then people were publishing them, so they became came known. So these shared secrets do not remain secret. Configurations will persist. Which is if you ship something that's in a completely open state, the most likely action from the consumer is to leave it in that completely open state, right? People aren't security experts, so why should we expect them to lock things down? And then the, as data accumulates, exposure will increase. And this is really where that privacy comes in. IoT devices are gathering huge amounts of data, and it may not seem like they've got information about us, but as we aggregate it, sometimes when you layer layer data, you get more able to like laser focus on who that data is connected to. The other thing is that data that we might not think is personal could be personal. And one thing that sticks with me is I was talking to a CISO at an electric company, and he was very concerned about the electric records being available. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's a privacy issue. And I said, is it because when people are going on vacation, maybe they use less energy? And he said, what could even tell you religion? Because... If the electrical use at a, at a house goes way down at sunset every Friday, that could tell me something about the religion of that household. And I realized, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot. We don't always think how this data about us, these little data breadcrumbs, could indicate more about ourselves. So those things are a really good way to initially think about what the big buckets of security are. And then beyond that, thinking about, you know, how attackers are using IoT. I had mentioned the Mirai botnet and they are absolutely weaponizing IoT devices. When you grab an IoT device and you pwn it or you own it, now you've got something that's going to be able to go out and, and do something for you, whether it's send denial of service, like in a volumetric attack, or if it's a device that has the capability to do email, for example, you could do email with it. Some devices have you know, full processors and you know, they can be used in crypto jacking where they're used to mine Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency. So you know, looking at how we lock these systems down to prevent attackers, not only from those other big buckets, but also from weaponizing our IoT. And Mariah is not the only big botnet that happened. Mosey just occurred over the summer, and that was a, a big one. Again, it was doing IoT devices, gateways, and DVRs, and again, exploiting weak passwords. There's a great Microsoft Security Threat Intelligence Center post on this. I absolutely loved it. They really broke it down really well and explained how the, the denial of service was attacked, was launched and also about how ransomware payloads were being launched after the attack. That's a whole lot of information, and it's fascinating, right? And yeah. I think that, so start with the dogs. You know, I was yes. commenting, uh, it's so funny you said that, because last week I was commenting, we're truly a tech household because we have redundancy. So the dogs, you know, have a chip, <laughs> they all have a chip, you know, from the vet. Yeah. My phone numbers on their collars, and now they have this GPS fitness tracker. So, you know, it's yes. three levels of redundancy to not losing my dogs. Um, <laughs> So if one factor fails, we have a couple others we can rely on. But, but I Love also it. was, yeah. But I also was thinking about this device that's on their neck, right? Because it, it is an IoT device, and it's giving the dog fitness data. And I doubt that there's, you know, I shouldn't say this. There's probably not an attack vector where someone's too worried about the fitness of my dog. But most humans I know also carry fitness trackers. And yes. I know you've seen, you know, the opportunity for potentially like healthcare blackmail. You know, do you want that information out there? And one of the, you know, concerns people have with having so much information electronically. And I always think about what's the next threat and are those fitness trackers going to be a big attack vector in the future? 
You know, it's funny that you say that because I did a, a this weird side sage thing at, at TED. It was the actual TED conference in Vancouver, but I wasn't on the main TED stage. I was off in a workshop room. But in any case, um, that was exactly, it was about threat modeling. And I did two use cases to threat model with the group. And the first one was on implantable medical devices, like pacemakers. And then we also threat modeled a fitness tracker, a risk-based fitness tracker. And at first, everybody just, the the thinking in the room was, well, there's a lot you can do with a pacemaker, but this fitness tracker adds just getting, it's just getting some, you know, heartbeat information, blood pressure, maybe information. And, and you're so right. As they started threat modeling, they came up with some really interesting misuse cases on the risk-based health tracker. And things like, look, if you're a CEO or a high-level executive at, at a big company, then your health actually could matter to an attacker and could potentially be blackmail material. Yeah, I think that. And, you know, speaking of that, we had um, a few seasons ago, we had Dr. Andrea Matwishan on, who's one of the leading experts in what she calls Internet of Bodies. So things like all of those embedded devices that have connectivity, and we've been doing that for probably now 15 to 20 years, by the way, and people didn't even realize that, you know, at first it was certificate-based authentication to do patches and updates to your pacemaker. Now we've moved on to something different, but the threat vector has been there for a very long time. All right, let's let's go back to something, well, maybe not cheerier, but <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to enterprise IoT. So I have two questions and I'll, I'll leave it with you, but can, can you talk us through two things? What are some security practices that could help network defenders and users combat IoT threats, particularly botnets? And... How can the industry help them by creating more standards for, you know, security for IoT devices and the creation and production of IoT devices? Yeah, so, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm like kind of a stan when it comes to NIST, but I've been really, really excited at how much NIST has stepped in here and started to lead the charge. They've been doing a lot of publications and thinking and, and also working with people outside. Some of the publications they've worked with, Rebecca Harold, for example, who's the, the privacy professor. So they're, they're also reaching out and working with folks outside of the government, and they've really got a lot of incredibly good guidance that can be a baseline. And sometimes people will say, well, why are you recommending NIST? It's really for the government. But a lot of the NIST, the special publications and the NISTers, which are the interagency reports, are fantastic baselines that can be used by both the government, but also by consumers and by enterprises. So a couple of the ones I'm really happy to have seen got published recently, and some are in draft and some have been finalized. But one is 8228, which is considerations for managing IoT, cybersecurity, and privacy risks, which is a really good baseline, I think, and a great overview for people that are getting started. On May 12th, Biden administration came out with an executive order about improving the nation's cybersecurity. So NIST came out with a lot of really good baselines on security criteria for IoT devices, including the consumer devices. And one of the things that I really like about where they're thinking is, is that they're not just saying devices themselves, but they're looking at IoT products. And when I first heard that, I was like, what? What's the difference between a product and a device? But what they mean is that the device is going to work within a system. So as you're assessing the security of that IoT solution, don't forget that it's working in a system. So that would mean the hub it's connected to, the gateways. If you've got a smart light bulb, right, what's the hub that's managing that smart light bulb? And what about the mobile device that you're then connecting to to manage the hub? 
So I like those. There's also a special pub 800-213, again, about like the, the device and the guidance that I think can really help people get a handle. So a lot of really great stuff coming out in this that I, I strongly recommend people go. And you can start with the ones I mentioned, but they're, they're really baselining and helping us all think about how to do this really well. And then we get into some other strong guidance, like you know, changing those default passwords that I talked about earlier, using multi-factor authentication wherever you can. You want to update and patch your systems. And then, sorry, I don't mean to buzzword people, but zero trust <laughs> and looking at adopting a zero trust access architecture that that can help a lot because the, the core of that is looking at your network segmentation and network segmentation really helps when attacks are underway. If you've got an attack, then you've got a, a strong segment, you're going to stop the lateral movement, you're going to stop that attack moving through your organization. So that can help quite a bit. And then identity, because when we talk about identity management, of course, we think about ourselves and individuals, but it's also workload to workload, application to an application and device to device. So that can help too, where if you're locking down and keeping a management of your identity and seeing those internet of things as IoT devices as having their own identities, that can really help a lot. And for that, again, for that DDoS, um, I think this is a great opportunity for any company that hasn't looked into the really dynamic, scalable DDoS protection that you can get from cloud providers. Now is the time and extend that DDoS protection to your IoT and your IoT environment. Yeah, I think that those are all really, really good ideas. And I'm a bit of a NIST stand also. So um, <laughs> I, it, it's also, we try to give practical guidance on the show. We're talking about big topics and we do try to give some practical yeah. guidance and I'll, and I'll give you an opportunity at the end. But before we go there, a couple more things. Remote work, bring your own device. So a little different than IoT, but how do you suggest employers get a handle on all the different, you know, laptops people are working on maybe at home and they're sharing with their kid or their spouse doing work and that may introduce malware to the device and then the, you know, bringing the actual remote device to the office even potentially? Yeah, I, it's one of the things I started working on with with companies is, is as we're going to be in this WFA work from anywhere environment, what is it that we're, that can, how can we strengthen that? How can we strengthen our programs? And I think creating policies around helping to set up a hygienic work from home environment, giving people either the, the tools to do it. So either you, maybe you give them the router you want to use at home or giving them a quick start guide can help a lot. Because to your example there, and you know, what, what happens when we're all on the same network? Well, we don't have to be. It's really easy to set up different wireless VLANs. And then you can have your smart locks and your washer and your kids playing their games. They can be on a separate VLAN. Or if you're if you have a wi if they have a wired house, it could be a separate wired VLAN too, if they're kicking it old school. But helping people understand how to set up segmentation and the wireless tools now for home use are really actually very, very user-friendly. But a lot of people just need a little bit of guidance on how to set that up. And so helping employees understand how to do that, how they can secure their smart devices, helping them understand about the default passwords, how to keep those devices, how to keep them patched. And then Zero Trust, again, coming in with better identity control. And on the corporate side, as people do come back into the corporate network, 
making sure you've got that really robust identity life cycle going so that when people do leave, you can remove access for them or access for their devices, especially if they are BYOD. And I just love that there have been so many technical advances that make it easier to manage identity and segmentation in complex multi-cloud environments. So those are sort of the, the main things, but again, widespread availability of, of MFA and turning it on. Oh, managed endpoint protection, this is another one, and, and endpoint detection and response. Get some sort of visibility into what's happening with those devices. Even if it's BYOD, you can still install a management agent on that device to give you a little bit more control from and transparency from the corporate viewpoint. And then the last thing that I'm really excited about is conditional access and just how much smarter we are about monitoring access and making smart decisions about who's doing what and stepping up that control if you need to when you see activity that's unusual or if you see people going to touch highly sensitive resources, either from their home or even from the corporate network. That's all really, really great advice. And I think the one thing that you said that resonates outside of zero trust, and I don't want to be play buzzword bingo also, but there's a <laughs> lot of value in a zero trust identity architecture is yeah. that the consumer tools are becoming simpler and we need to keep yeah. driving consumer tooling to be simpler so people can be inherently more secure. Yes, yeah. All right, let's pivot for a second and talk about the shows you produce. So you produce My Cyber Why series and Bright Talks, the Security Balancing Act. And these programs are fantastic, right? They provide so much insight to the industry. And I know I learn a lot from every guest I have on Afternoon Cyber Tea. So what is your favorite part of hosting the shows you host? Oh, you're so nice. <laughs> With my cyber why, I actually got the idea from Tommy Salmanpa, who is, he was one of the first guests. And he does uh, cybersecurity for Finnish Traficom Aviation. And he was telling me about his job. And, and I was just blown away because I didn't understand, A, how much cybersecurity went into the aviation industry. I mean, I knew that for the planes themselves, we had to make sure the software was secure, but but even the communication internationally, because as we fly, we fly over different airspace and different geos and control over the airspace. And it just blew me away. So I said, Tommy, I think everybody needs to know what you do because it's such a wonderful thing to keep people safe. And that was the genesis of my cyber why it was just to celebrate people doing really cool things in cyber that a lot of us, or at least me, I didn't know about. So I, I love, as you do, I love learning from from people and also just being able to celebrate all all these different the different ways people work in cybersecurity. We just recently had Ellen Zhu, who's the uh, high schooler, and she's incredible. She's got her own podcast and she's just kicking it as a, one of the top capture the flag students in the country. And then all the way to Craig Jones, who he's, he leads cybersecurity for Interpol, but he started as a beat cop in the UK. So just these wonderful stories. And I, I love hearing the stories and I love being able to share them with others. And then the Security Balancing Act, because it is really about how do we balance security and privacy, but keep our, our, our organizations still you know very competitive. And I just love this sort of surprise element of each month, the folks at Bright Talk will bring different people into the conversation. So sometimes we source guests together, but they also bring in guests. And so I never know who's going to be on the show until they give me the list of who's going to be on there. And then we have this wonderful, our first call to get ready for the actual show itself and just the different dynamic and hearing the different viewpoints from people and then pulling it all together into an, org an organic conversation is just a whole lot of fun. And then on Security Balancing Act, we're also live. So we get 
a lot of audience questions that really kind of gooses how the conversation goes and it has to keep me on my toes. We were doing um, election security and whether elections, elections were secure. We happened to be doing that on January 19th or 20th of this year was when we were running that show. So it was when the, the, when Biden was being sworn in and I really had to be on my toes with the questions that day because there was a lot of oh, people had opinions that day about yeah, election no security. Doubt. Yeah. So, Diana, you're never standing still. So, can you share a bit with our listeners about what you're working on currently? Okay. And so, as you know, when I left Microsoft, I had intended to volunteer about 50 to 60% of my time for technical nonprofits. And then I was thinking about an animal shelter for elderly companion animals that didn't have a home. So that was sort of where my thinking was last year. And the really good news is that I do devote 50 to 60% of my time to cyber nonprofit work. So that's that's, I feel really happy about that. I'm on the executive board for WESIS. You had mentioned what I do with ACM. I'm lead the inclusion working group at, at WESIS, Sightline Security I work at. I'm on the board at Cyber Future Foundation, Cyber uh, Advisory Board for CompTIA. I work with Bartlett College of Science and Mathematics at BSU. So a lot of stuff that I had really wanted to, to be able to devote time to, and I feel so grateful that I have the time. But for the rest of the time in the day, people kept asking me to do things and I keep doing them. So I, so the shelter for the companion animals is on hold. And the other part of my, my time, I'm working with Salt Cyber and I do VC so work through Salt Cyber. I'm also a principal consulting analyst with TechVision Research, <laughs> which is a lot of the former Burton Group folks. And I do startup mentorship and advisory and executive advisory for CISOs and CSOs. That's all? Oh, you, you know. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> well, I don't I know gonna, how you do all that. <laughs> well, I, I missed one because I'm the conference chair for EWF, but you and I are both on the advisory board there. So that's awesome. Yeah, that is. And and then you have, you have the pups. So um, I know you spend a lot of time with your pups too. I do. And, and I don't know, have you seen Bunny, the dog that talks with buttons? Because... I got, have you, have you seen her? <laughs> I, I have seen her. I just can't figure out how to get my dogs to even, well, never mind. They're not that well-trained. <laughs> so, I, so you, you know, I have Nick and Nora and Nora is really, she's just the, the, she's a more motivated dog. Let me put it that. So she's got inside and outside with her doorbell buttons and she can do some, some communication with her buttons. And Nick is, it very, very, very grudgingly will put his paw on the button to come back in when he wants to come in. I think I could get Mariah to do that. I just need to spend yeah. some time with her. Well, thanks so much, Diana. We want to send our listeners off with one or two key takeaways about how you think we can overcome the threats we're seeing and why you're hopeful about the future of cybersecurity. So I think we can overcome because when we all work together and Anybody who's not a criminal trying to steal from someone on, in the cyber realm is we're all on the same team. I think the more that we can communicate and share information with each other, the, the stronger we're going to be. And there's a lot more information sharing that's going on. So that makes me very hopeful. And I think in order for us to be able to do that as, as, as a group, as an entity, is to just remember to take a deep breath not let the attackers weaponize our fear. They're they're playing on that we're going to get scared, that we're going to go into crouch and defense mode instead of into, we got this, 
We just need to work together and plan and, and roll things out in a way that's going to keep us all stronger and more resilient. So we can do this and working together is the key. Excellent. Well, thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much, Anne. It was great to be here. And thank you to our listeners and join us again for the next episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea. So I chose Diana Kelly because I've known her a while and she is just this immense resource for knowledge. She is one of the most knowledgeable people across a wide variety of cybersecurity topics and incredibly deep and also just this great person who volunteers time to help make the industry better. Very personable. I always learn whenever I talk to her and she was just this awesome guest on Afternoon Cyber Tea. It's one of my favorite episodes, so I say that about every episode. 